So, do you believe in ghosts? If you do, you're not alone. A recent survey of, of Americans said that, that uh, 63% believed in some type of paranormal activity. So what about you? Do you believe in ghosts? See, now, that's, that's an important question, but there's a more important question. There's a more important question. What has shaped your beliefs about ghosts and spirits? What has shaped your beliefs? Is it Hmong folklore and ghost stories? Is it horror films? Paranormal TV shows? Or how about that grainy security footage you watch on YouTube? So what has shaped what you believe about ghosts? See, my bet is at least one, if not a number of these things, has shaped your views and opinions possibly more than the Bible, and possibly more than even you realize. So when I started prepping for this, this talk about ghosts and spirits, it was a couple weeks ago, and, and I thought I knew what the Bible said about ghosts. And I had a nice, simple, clear sermon planned. But the more that I read and the more that I studied, the less simple and the less clear things got. And where I landed was completely unexpected for me. It was not where I thought I would land. And so today, this sermon is going to be a little different. I'm going to take you on sort of a first-person intellectual narrative of what I've been through over the last couple weeks to come to this point. And hopefully, by doing so, I can walk you along some of the same questions I've asked and provide you with some of the insights that I believe God's given me. And don't worry, this will be very PG-13. I know the kids are with us, so no exorcist, conjuring, any of that. Don't worry about that. Very PG this time. So first, before we dive in, let me define three terms. Three terms here that, that I'm going to be using. First is spirit. Now, this is a generic term. This can either refer to mean the eternal soul of a person, a person's spirit, uh, but it can also mean a non-human spiritual being, like an angel or a demon. Okay, the next one is ghost. What do I mean by ghost? So this is the disembodied spirit of a person who is on earth instead of somewhere else. So that's what I'm referring to as a ghost, a disembodied spirit or soul of a person. And then lastly, a demon is quite simply an evil angel. And now, this last one is really important to understand. See, angels and demons are actually the same species, if you want to call them that. It, when time started, there were only angels, and in fact, something happened between Genesis 1 in creation and Genesis 3 with the fall, where one of the head angels disobeyed and rebelled against God. And he took a whole group of angels along with him. Because of their disobedience, God cast them out of heaven. We know them as Satan and demons. 
And since that time, being outside of God's presence, they have slowly been corrupted and deteriorated, and they are fully committed to evil and the destruction of God's people. That's Satan and the demons. So spirit, ghost, demon. Got that? Okay. Now, if you had asked me two weeks ago, are ghosts biblical? I would have given you what is probably the most common Christian answer. No, ghosts are not biblical. They're actually demons disguising themselves to look like former family members, images you've seen in movies and TV, maybe whatever your worst nightmares would be. But they're all demons. There's no such thing as ghosts. And, and see, because the Bible is very clear about some things. It's very clear that when a person dies, they cannot return from the dead. Hebrews 9.27 says, man is destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. Ecclesiastes 12.7 describes death like this. The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Job 7, 9-10 to speaks of the dead like this. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. So there's no real, in those verses, and I could read more. It's not like those are the only ones. So it seems that there's no place for this intermediate step of wandering the earth. And so it seems like ghosts, as in the spirits of dead people, are not biblical. Okay, that makes sense. But then I kept reading, and I dug a little deeper, and I ran across a passage like this. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Okay, well, okay, maybe the disciples believed in ghosts. They, the disciples believed a whole bunch of wrong things. So maybe they wrongly believed in ghosts or b- believed in the mythology of the time. Okay, that makes sense. Then I found this one. When the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples, he said, Look at my hands, look at my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Okay, wait. Does this mean Jesus believed in ghosts? Or maybe, maybe he was just playing into a mythology that the, that the disciples believed in order to help them understand his resurrected body. So maybe it was just that. He was just playing. He was speaking into a mythology, a wrong mythology that disciples believed to help him understand that he was a person who apparently died and now is back. Okay? I'm like, okay, okay. So I kept digging. I just kept going. And, and I found three passages in Scripture, one in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament, where a person who was dead appeared to people who are alive. Three passages. And now that really sounds like a ghost to me. Here's the first one. The first one is the story of the witch at Endor. It's better translated as the medium at Endor. 
Okay, and Endor was a city, not the Ewok home planet, in case you were wondering. Okay. So this is out of 1 Samuel 23. And here, see, a spirit of the dead prophet Samuel appeared to King Saul while he sought out a medium, a spiritualist, and, and spoke. He, the, the spirit of this Samuel, who at least identified themselves as Samuel, spoke to King Saul, condemned him of his sin, and prophesied his death the next day, which, by the way, happened. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one is in the Gospels. There's an event called the Transfiguration. And this is where Jesus took his, his three close disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountaintop, and he revealed his full glory. We're talking full on, oh, okay, white glowing robes, the whole bit. But it wasn't just Jesus. On his right was Moses. On his left was Elijah. And if you know anything about biblical timeline, they'd been dead a long time. And they started talking with Jesus. And meanwhile, Peter, John, and James are standing right there. Okay. Now lastly, there's a little known moment during the crucifixion that I think most people just read right on over. I've never seen this show up in nativity plays. I've never preached a sermon on this one. I really should some Easter, though, because listen to this. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, we like that. The earth shook. The rocks split. Cool. Earthquakes. Got it. And the tombs broke open. Huh? The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Whoa. Then, then came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What? That's beginning to sound like the end of every Ghostbusters movie. Oh. So, so I said, like, what am I supposed to do with these passages, these biblical texts? And it's not just a one-off. Three of them were someone who was dead appeared to people who were alive. What do I do with this? I wrestled with this for days. So I did not know how to rationalize the, the view that I had always heard from pastors and Christians and blogs that ghosts were not biblical. What do I do with these three stories? So I kept reading and reading and studying, trying to make sense of it. And then all of a sudden, it clicked. The Holy Spirit revealed something to me that finally made sense. I finally understood this. And the secret lies back in the Witch of Endor passage. So we're going to go back to that one. So now, there's a common interpretation of this passage. Because most Christians approach the Bible to say there, cannot, there are not ghosts. They say then this, the spirit, this thing of Samuel that appeared was not actually Samuel. It was actually a demon impersonating Samuel. 
Okay, so that's the most common explanation and interpretation of this passage. But the problem is I've never liked that explanation. And, and as I studied this, I found two places in this passage that seem to point that that is not correct. So the first one was this, and I love this. Even the medium herself was shocked that this spirit appeared. She was, she was surprised and shocked. And so that tells me this does not normally happen with her. She probably does the normal psychic stuff, which is cold reads, educated guesses, vague generalities. But no, an actual spirit appeared and she freaked out. Okay? So that's one. The other one, and this is actually even more important. See, the spirit did not behave like a demon. In fact, the spirit behaved exactly like the prophet Samuel. He called out Saul's sin, and that's what Samuel did his whole life. He called out King Saul's sin, and then he correctly foretold the future. And that's exactly what the prophet Saul did. You see, there's a difference between how demons and God works. And why I don't believe the explanation of this spirit was a demon really works here. Because demons work in the currency of lies. Now, demons can still condemn you, and they will try to condemn you. They'll condemn you for your sins, condemn you for your thoughts. But, but demons do it with lies, not truth. And this spirit... Condemned King Saul with truth, not lies. And then, then the second one, the second one is this. That that spirit appeared, and God is the one who works in truth. And God is the one who knows the future. See, Satan is not omnipresent. Satan cannot see the future. He can predict the future. Because demons have a few thousand years of recorded human history that they've observed. But demons cannot know the future. They can at best predict the future. But God knows the future. Because he existed before time, and he exists outside of time. And so when I look at this story, I conclude that this was actually the prophet Samuel. And I realized that all of these stories had one thing in common. All three of these biblical incidences had one thing in common. Okay? That they were all acts of God. They were not acts of Satan. They were not acts of demons. They were acts of God. God brought up the spirit of Samuel. Okay? Because the medium had nothing to do with it. That's why she was as surprised as King Saul was. Because God brought up temporarily the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel. God brought up Moses and Elijah next to Jesus in his full glory. The reason is to show that Jesus Christ was greater than the law represented by Moses and greater than the prophets represented by Elijah. And in fact, in only the, the, this, the only second time in biblical recorded history was the, fit, the audible voice of God that said, listen to him. You've listened to the, pro, the, the law 
in the past. You've listened to the prophets. Now, listen to him, Jesus. I realize I just made myself into Jesus. Yeah. Okay, don't take that. Okay, so God brought up Moses and Elijah. And God also brought up the spirits of the dead, the saints of Jerusalem. Now, why did he do that? Because it turns out in the Old Testament, there are prophecies of the promised Messiah that would restore Israel and bring peace to God's people. And one of those prophecies is that he would free people from the grave. And so when Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, God chose to raise some people from the dead. Now, we don't know if this was temporarily. I'm guessing it was because Jesus Christ has been the only person who has been fully resurrected for eternity. But God raised up those people to show that this man, this, this God-man, Jesus Christ, was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. All three of these were acts of God, not acts of demons. So do ghosts exist? Maybe. I'm not prepared to say no, because we've got three biblical accounts of people who were formerly dead appearing to people who are alive. So do ghosts exist? Maybe. But probably not in the way that we think. You see, from these passages, I think we could draw a few conclusions. I found three. Three things about ghosts that we can draw from these three passages. First, ghosts are very, very rare. So we have three ghost sightings in the Bible across four to 5,000 years of recorded biblical history. So don't think for a moment that that bump in the night or that shadow in the hall is a ghost. It probably isn't because ghosts are very, very rare. Second, ghosts are under God's direction and control. This is not what Hollywood tells us. It's not what Japanese horror films tell us. It's definitely not what the paranormal TV shows tell us. But it's what the Bible says. Doesn't it seem to point to that? That all three of these experiences in Scripture, the spirits, the ghosts, were entirely under God's control and direction. They have nothing to do. So ghosts have nothing to do with being murdered in a house, having unfinished business on earth, or wanting to communicate with relatives who are still alive. And they have nothing to do with enacting an ancient curse but they have everything to do with the will of God. Third, God used ghosts to point people to Jesus and back to himself. And that's probably the most unexpected thing. That God used, three times, God used ghosts to direct people to Jesus and to him. These ghosts, they don't terrorize new homeowners, okay? they don't kill little kids, and they don't destroy property. But 
there are spiritual beings that terrorize, kill, and destroy. And those are demons. And that's why I believe that most, if not even all of the the paranormal experiences that you might have encountered personally, or you've seen or you've watched, that those are most likely demons imitating ghostly behavior. And those, those ghost experiences are actually demonic experiences. So that shadow you see in the hall, that sound you hear in the night, it might be real, but it's probably not a ghost. Two things it could be. First, it could be a demon. And I'll explain why in a moment. But the second is this, and I, and, and I do have to say this. It could be a figment of your imagination. And I would say, honestly, I would say the more of this you consume, the more horror movies, the more TV shows, the more YouTube clips you watch, the more ideas and images and faces and scenarios get implanted into your head. And the more opportunities demons, demons have to impersonate what you are afraid of, what you fear most. But I want to tell you something. If you believe in God, if you believe you belong to Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can harm you in terms of demonic spirits because you already have a greater spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a greater spirit. And Jesus said that. John 4, 4 says this. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. And if you don't belong to God, if you aren't a Christian, this is God's invitation to you to fall under his family and to fall under his protection and his power. Now that Something's interesting. If, if, you, if you know horror movies at all, and one of the things I did to prepare for this sermon was I actually watched The Conjuring. Now, I don't watch a whole lot of horror. I don't watch any horror movies. But I had read numerous articles that talked about this movie having some of the best Christian theology in it out of the horror movie genre. And you know what? It was actually true. Theologically, it is one of the, the better Christian movies I've ever seen which is bizarre. But now, have you ever wondered why horror movies use so much Christian theology? Even the ones who don't believe, and apparently the, the two writers of the original Conjuring were both Christians. But have you ever wondered why horror movies use so much Christian theology and Christian activity and priests in the church? Even when they don't believe it, there's a reason for that. Because the world has nothing to offer that can defeat evil. Thank you. 
It's true. All Western rationalism has to offer you is to tell you that spirits don't exist. All Hmong shamanism has to offer to you is to tell you how to appease the spirits. And all pop culture has to offer you is to show you how to be entertained by spirits. But only Jesus Christ, only Christianity offers you a way to defeat evil. And even non-Christian Hollywood and Japanese horror movie directors know that. There is nothing this world offers to defeat evil. But God does and has. In fact, Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, defeated Satan once and for all. The spiritual battle is already won. And when you live in Christ, you live under that victory and you live in that victory. You live under the power of the name of Jesus. And that is God's invitation for you today. To live under the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, after each sermon, we always like to give you some time to reflect. And today we're going to do a scripture meditation. So we're going to spend a few minutes meditating on a single verse of scripture. Now, I know if you've, if you've got fidgety little kids, this might be a little distracting, but do your best with it here. And so there's, there's one passage out of James we're going to read. And we're going to do this for about four minutes. And what I'd like you to do is I, I want to give you four terms, four minutes, four ideas. You're going to do four things for a minute each. And it starts with read. I want you to just sit and read the passage. Read it a couple times. If you're a fast reader, read it three or four times. If you're a slow reader, read it once. After you've read it, then reflect. Look at it again and see what words jump out at you. See what ideas are new to you. And then respond. As you've listened to what God wants to tell you through this passage, respond to him. I don't know what your response is going to be, but God will invite you to respond in some way. And then lastly, rest. Just sit with God with this new idea, this new response. And let him water that seed. Let him plant it in you. And let it grow. So we're going to put the passage up on the screen here. It's James 4, 7 to 8. And so I'll read it, and then we'll start four minutes of Scripture meditation on this passage. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Wash, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So I'm going to start a, a clock at, for four minutes. And now is your opportunity to read, reflect, respond, and rest 
in God's word.